Hi, this is Pastor Curtis Crawford welcoming you to our podcast. At Revive Outreach Church, we're striving to revive an awareness of Christ in our communities through Christ-centered compassion, service, and evangelism. You can learn more about us online at www.reviveoc.org or on Facebook at facebook.com slash church. We hope that you enjoy this message and God bless. We are going to continue our series on the book of Romans today. So if you want to open up with me in your Bibles, the book of Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans chapter 3. And we're going to be starting with verse 1. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Uh, You'll want to keep your Bibles out and you'll want to uh, follow along as we go through Romans chapter 3. We're going to be going uh, verse by verse, continuing our series. And as you turn there, uh, just a quick uh, reminder of what we've looked at so far. In chapter 1, we looked at uh, Paul's attention to travel to Rome, and uh, we looked at uh, you know the sinfulness of man and those who continue to rebel and reject God. And in chapter 2, we looked at the wrath of God being poured out upon man and uh, because of his continued rebelliousness and that man doesn't have excuses before God uh, because God has revealed himself. Uh, through nature, through his divine unseen attributes, creation, his power, the uh, law of God, our conscience that's given to each of uh, each of us. Uh, and uh, so God is known if you want to know him. Amen. Uh, and then uh, last week, uh, or the, uh, the end of chapter two, uh, we looked at uh, that the, the, you know he, he singled out the Jews because uh, you know Paul wanted to make sure that as he was uh, addressing his audience and saying these things as it relates to uh, you know sin, uh, just in case his Jewish readers would begin to think, well, we're good and we follow the law, and uh, so you know we, we're we're being obedient to the law, we're doing all of these things, and we're special because God chose us and uh, God gave the law to us and gave us and revealed Himself to us. Uh, you know that uh, you know this that this uh, message about grace and this message about salvation through faith alone it's not for us and so Paul makes sure to uh, uh, to tell those Jewish readers that you know they think that themselves that they're teachers to teach the Gentiles and to teach everyone else about God yet even though what they teach they do they teach you not to do something and yet they still practice those things they lie and they steal and they cheat and. Uh, They're still committing those uh, things that they're telling others not to do. And so therefore, if they're still committing those uh, sins, if they're still rebelling before God, it doesn't matter what their knowledge is. It doesn't matter that their father was Abraham. It doesn't matter that God revealed himself to them in a special way. And they're his chosen people uh, if they're still rebellious before him. And so this week we're going to uh, continue to that thought as it relates to the law, as it relates to uh, the idea that the law alone can save us and a knowledge of the law, the knowledge of the law doesn't do us any good uh, and, and if we're not obedient to the law. Knowing it is one thing, doing it is something else. And so we're going to talk about that today. So open up with me again to Romans chapter 3. Let's begin with verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because of them were committed the oracles of God, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? 
Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So Paul anticipates the Jew, Jewish readers uh, getting a little upset because they're going to feel like, you know, he, he said, hey, you are no different than the uncircumcised because you don't keep the law. Uh, the circumcision on the outside doesn't mean anything if you're not changed on the inside and you're not uh, you're still living in rebellious just before God uh, and, and you know he just got done at the end of chapter 2 doing something that would have not made the Jews very happy uh, saying that Gentiles who were uncircumcised to obey the law were better than them if they were disobedient to the law they were even below the Gentiles who would obey the law. Now, his, what Paul is saying is not anyone could be obedient to every tenet of the law, but what he's saying here is he's letting them know that they're no better than the Gentiles, right? That, that they are all equal before God. And so he knows that they're going to be like, hey, now, hold on for a second. You know, uh, God had revealed himself to us uh, through Moses and through Abraham and you know, he instituted the act of circumcision to separate us and identify us as his people. So, hey, you know, what's the deal? So Paul starts off here in chapter 3, verse 1, by asking that rhetorical question. Then, you know, what advantage has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? And he says, it's got a great meaning. There is a great profit, mainly because God gave to them the oracles of God. Now the oracles of God there, as Paul is using it, is the entirety of the Old Testament. It's Genesis, right, uh, through the end. It's the entirety of the entirety. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, everything, God gave it to the Jews, and so that makes them special. It does make them special. They are God's chosen people, and God has made promises to the Jewish people that are still in the process of being fulfilled, that were made specifically to the, to the Jews. And so those uh, promises are still in the process of being fulfilled, and God had given a special blessing to his people, and he had protected them and preserved them. Even to this day, God has preserved them when the world has tried to destroy them time and time again, and God has still preserved them. And so uh, they're... Special. He also says that for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God uh, to no effect? What he's saying here is, is that if there are Jews out there who reject God amongst the Jews that believe in God, does it mean that God's promises for the Jews are not uh, going to happen? And that's not the case at all. What he's saying here is that just because some don't believe doesn't mean that God isn't faithful to those who do believe. And so God is still going to honor the Jews and fulfill the promises that he made to them, that he made to Abraham, that he made to uh, Isaac, that he made to Jacob, right, that he made over and over and over again to the nation of Israel. He's uh, going to fulfill those promises and even if there's some that reject him and don't believe, it does not mean that God's not going to fulfill the promises that he made. He says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. That means that even if there are those that say that God cannot honor, will not honor the promises to the nation of Israel and the promises that God makes, 
because there are people who are rebellious before them, those men are liars. For God is not a liar. He is not like man that he shall lie. God is not slack according to his promises. God will deliver in everything that he's promised and act and do everything that he said. Uh, but regardless of if there's people that say he can't or won't or doesn't exist. So it doesn't matter about the dissenters. It matters about those who believe. Amen. And God will fulfill his promises to those who believe. Amen. Now look with me at verses 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So let me give you a bit of information here before we uh, dive in here. Uh, there were people that did not like Paul's message. Uh, I can't go into all of, uh, I don't have time to go into all of the details this morning, but Paul was specifically by the Jews, very much people uh, fought against what he was saying because they felt like Paul was diminishing the law that God had given because he was talking about grace and salvation through faith alone and that no amount of obedience to the law and no amount of sheep and goats that doves that were sacrificed, right? Man can never have their relationship permanently repaired before God without faith. The death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and without faith in him. And so they were taking his message because they could not win when arguing through the scripture. They began to pervert his message. And that's what he is going to address here. The, he's going to talk about how the argument that the Jewish, his Jewish uh, uh, detractors were stating, which so that's why Paul says, if, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Uh, he's saying here, uh, have you ever uh, went to a jewelry store? Anyone here ever went to a jewelry store and looked at the jewelry? That's right. Uh, my wife likes to wander by the jewelry stores and the mall and poke her head in or look at the display case and, you know, subtle, subtly hint that uh, she wish she had a husband that would hook her up, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, in a, jewel, a jeweler, uh, what they do if they're showing you a precious diamond or showing you a diamond, uh, they will lay out a black cloth. And they will lay that diamond upon the cloth because what it does is it accentuates the brilliance of the diamond, the clarity, the color, the beauty of the diamond, right? And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that man is so dirty and gross that we make God look good, right? We're that black cloth, and we make God look good because he is so righteous and we are a mess, Right? And that's what the, the, the Paul is saying here. And, and it is a fact, right? We are dirty and we are lost and we are unrighteous. And compared to God's righteousness, we just make him look more righteous, right? We, we demonstrate how holy and how righteous God is if we compare ourselves to him. And that is the truth. Mm -hmm. But what was happening is, is the Jews were saying that because Paul 
was uh, saying that salvation is through great grace alone. They were distorting, and they were saying that because we Paul, that Paul's message was because we made God look good, that God had no way or no place to judge us because we actually made God more holy and more righteous uh, to the people. Uh, and Paul, of course, is saying that is absolutely ridiculous. For one thing, it is man who likes to compare themselves to others. That's a man, that's a human trait. Amen. We as humans, we love to compare ourselves to others and say, that person's skinny, or that person's fat, I'm skinny. That person, I'm muscular, that person's not muscular. That person's this, that person's this, I'm this, I'm that. We love to compare. They're not as wealthy as I am, I'm wealthy. I, you know, we make ourselves feel better. And then also on the other uh, instance, uh, instance, those of us who are negatively inclined and see the glass half empty instead of half full, we look and we say, uh, wow, they've got it so much better than us. And God's blessed them more than us. And they have this and they have that. We love to compare. God is not like me. God is not set up in heaven and say, boy, do I look good today compared to Curtis Crawford. Wow. He is a mess. I sure feel good about myself today. Right? That is a concept that man has because of our selfishness and our self-centeredness. Right? God doesn't have any of that. He's righteous, and he's the moral authority, and he doesn't have faults of having to feel like looking down and compare himself because he gets down on it, down and out. He isn't prideful or arrogant. He, he doesn't need to compare himself to anything. Amen. He's God. And so obviously they were trying to make this argument against Paul from a human standpoint, uh, and it just doesn't make sense. They were as ascribing human attributes to God. Right? And there have been whole religions, the Greeks, the Romans, that uh, ascribe their human uh, attributes and failures like selfishness and self-centeredness and pride and arrogance to a bunch of false gods. And those false gods were a mess. Right? God is not like man. He made us in his image and he gave us certain uh, communicable attributes like the ability to make decisions and act upon those decisions, but he did not give us his attributes that are called incommunicable attributes, like his omnipotence and his, his uh, omnipresence and his, his omniscience, his all-knowing, right? Uh, he didn't give us those things, the things that make him God, right? Um, so, uh, again, this, the illustration is ridiculous, that, that what they're saying. Uh, and they were trying to argue and say, well, then, if your message, then that makes God unjust. And how, if, if God is unjust, how then can he inflict wrath because we make him look good? Right? We're, we're his weak man. We're making him look great. How can he be mad at us? Again, foolishness. To you and I, it sounds like it's ridiculous. But this argument was being uh, spread around and it was so uh, having such an impact that Paul was having to address it. Because people were buying in. All right? Uh, so uh, he says there in verses 7 and 8 for the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory why am I also just as a sinner and why not say let us do evil that good may come uh, as we are slanderously reported that is some affirm that we say basically bottom line they were saying listen his, his enemies were saying what Paul teaches is giving you a license to sin because the more you sin the better you make God look that this law of grace 
this, this idea that uh, salvation is through faith alone and grace alone and that you cannot ever possibly be obedient enough to the law to satisfy God's righteous judgment, which is why he sent Jesus Christ. They said by teaching, teaching that the law could not save you, they were essentially giving everybody freedom to just act any way they wanted to. To sin however they wanted to sin. Alright? Now, let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So Paul is now going to transition to uh, start talking about how we are all under sin again. So he is going to summarize mankind in general and what mankind is in general before God. Uh, so he's saying first, not, none of us is better than anybody else. Christians aren't better, you know, saints aren't better than sinners. Christians aren't better than everybody else. We are all have sin, right? And we have not, uh, we are not saved because of how, uh, anything to do with ourselves. It has because of, we're saved because of God's mercy and grace. All right, so now let's look here at verses 10 through 11. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. Uh, what Paul is doing here, and he's uh, starting with verse 10, is he's beginning to quote a bunch of different Old Testament scriptures from Psalms and Isaiah. All scriptures that demonstrate his point that man in general is evil and have sinned. That no one can say that they have never sinned before God. Alright, so he says, one, uh, there is none righteous, no, not one. Meaning, uh, there is not one person on the face of this earth who is good. We are all evil. The only person that was born on the face of this earth that was perfect is Jesus Christ. And he was born and never sinned, and that's why he could atone for our sins as the sinless Lamb of God. He says there is no one who understands. It means these people uh, who not only are ignorant, but they are willfully ignorant. Right? Man in general is not only ignorant of who God is, and uh, uh, as we just discussed in chapter, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's not only he's willfully ignorant. We choose to ignore God. There's no one who understands. We choose to ignore God's truth. So it's not just ignorance, it's willful ignorance. There is none who seeks after God. No matter what uh, these false religions say, they're not truly seeking after God. They're seeking after some mockery of God. Some selfish, self-centered uh, approach to God. Uh, and so therefore, there's no one who, those people who are uh, chasing those false religions, they're not really seeking after God. They've turned aside, verse 12. Basically what this was used is it was used to describe a soldier who was running away or deserting his post. Men in general, we are inclined to run from God and do our own thing. When a soldier is in battle, uh, 
and he, he decides to desert because of fear or whatever the case may be, he's deserting out of selfishness, a desire to preserve his life. Selfishness and self-centeredness. He does not want to sacrifice. Mankind does not want to sacrifice and be obedient to God. We want to live in rebelliousness because we don't want anybody telling us what to do. And we want to do what we want to do and we want to do it right and what we want to do. And so therefore, uh, we run from God's standard. We desert the post. He then says now in verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Uh, just like uh, these are uh, just like a tomb. We close tombs. We bury people in a casket under the ground for a reason. Right? Because if you do not, it's unsanitary. It's unhealthy as the body decays. Right? It's nasty. It's gross. Right? You ever watch those, uh, uh, the, any of those crime shows? Kelly and I watched that series Bones uh, for a while, which was, Took me a few episodes to get, because that's just about dead people and all that. And, and it's gross looking at something that's decayed. And what Paul is saying is that when you and I open our mouths, the veritable, right, all of the sin and rebelliousness and cursings that come out of us, it reveals that the inside of us is nothing but dead and decayed. Wow. Like a tomb. It's like a tomb that you take the top off of and just expose everything. From out of the mouth flows the abundance of the heart. Amen. Yeah. So that's what Paul is saying here. In general, mankind is wicked and depraved and decaying and dying on the inside. And so we spew that out. It's like an open tomb. He says that we have poison under our lips like vipers. We're vicious. We like to attack people. We like to, uh, you know, have, we have venomous attitudes towards people. Mm -hmm. Right? We're not loving and caring many times. If someone gets on our nerves, what's the first thing we do? Like a snake, we strike back. Mm -hmm. Right? It's our nature to defend ourselves. It's our nature to fight back. It's our nature... Right? And so, uh, as mankind in general, we're not uh, very accepting of others' faults and others who annoy us or irritate us or do us wrong. And like like us uh, going into the territory of a, a rattlesnake or a copperhead in our region who becomes defensive, angry, and will lash out and bite. That's what man does with our attitudes and our words. He says in verse 14, that our mouths are full of cursing. This right here is saying and referring to wanting the absolute worst for somebody and then ex expressing those words publicly, cursing them, saying, I hope you die. I hope you lose your job. I hope you get sick. I have to confess something before you, and I'll have to delete this out of the sermon audio. The other day, I, I shouldn't confess this. I'm going to confess it anyway. I'm human. I was driving, and this car was not cooperating. I was trying to get over, 
Uh, and I drive in D.C. Uh, I've made the joke before that I, uh, I don't have a Jesus bumper sticker on my car on purpose. There's no Jesus fish because I don't want to make God look bad. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't like use the finger or anything like that, but I do drive like a maniac. I have to commute in D.C. And the truth is you got to sometimes cut people off and you got to be ruthless up there. Otherwise, you're not going to get where you're going. I don't want people going, look at how he drives. And he's got a Jesus fish on his car. So, I'm driving the other day, and this car is not letting me over. Man, I got angry because he was going to make me miss where I needed to go. He would, if I sped up, he sped up. If I slowed down, he slowed down. Don't know what the deal was. If it was on purpose, I took it personally. So when I finally, he cooperated, finally, at the very last moment, I, I was able to get over. And just for a second, I said, man, I hope he has an accident. <laughs> this now, isn't that awful? Now, you guys all grabbed your mouths, and you all said, oh, my goodness, but you guys have done things just like that before, and you're just not going to admit it. You thought, my goodness, I hope they get what they gave to me. Will this be in the director's cut of the sermon? <laughs> the extended cut, that's correct. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. You all say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe the pastor said that or thought that. I felt guilty immediately. However, I did cross my mind. Right now, I felt terrible afterwards. I really did. But we do that. That's cursing. Someone did something wrong to us, and we wish evil upon them. And then the worst part is, we don't only wish evil upon them, we then start telling others to wish evil upon them. That's cursing. Recruiting people to the cause of hating others. And here's the thing, all mankind is guilty of it. All of us. And that's what Paul is saying. None of us can sit in judgment of anybody else because we've all done it. All right. Bitterness. Bitterness is that public expression of hostility against someone's enemy. So being publicly mean, hurtful, and angry to somebody because they either upset you or they looked at you wrong or they didn't do something you like. Amen. Right? Just being ornery. And there are some people that are just ornery. Amen. <laughs> I've been known to be ornery on occasion. No. Right? Okay, that's enough talking back from you guys. <laughs> Alright, let me tell you. I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, we're ornery, right? And we're bitter. And we, we are mean to people. Uh, and that's what that means, being bitter. Uh, verse 16, now he's quoting from Isaiah. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Destruction and misery. Man, when left to his own devices, his own decisions, without the intervention of God, we will destroy everything we touch. Amen. And we leave a trail of pain and suffering behind us in our wake. Uh, if you've ever been boating, it is very disrespectful when you're on the water to drive in such a way that you, the wake of the boat behind you hits a boat, another boat. 
right? So uh, there'll be people that on purpose will be on the river or on the lake and they will speed up so their wake is really big, that, that water that's coming out the back that creates the ripples and the waves and uh, to, to rock other people's boats. And that's why when you're coming closer to boats, you're supposed to slow down to make the wake smaller. We as humans, we create huge wakes and we cause lots of destruction, flip a lot of boats, hurt a lot of people, we're left to our own devices. And that's what we do. We destroy relationships. We hurt people. And it's no more evident than our world of social media where people are, are just awful to each other. Sending things out into the void of the internet, hurting whoever we can, not even realizing the damage that we caused and the people that we hurt. The way of peace they have not known. This isn't about peace inside of you. This is about living at peace with others. Humans love conflict. We thrive on drama. Right? Now all of us have said that about somebody. That person loves drama. We've all said it about somebody. Someone's probably said it about you. And someone's probably said it about me. Because in general, men love conflict. Right? They love conflict. We thrive on it. We're mean. We're much rather say a mean word. Or worse, be passive aggressive. And say nice words mean. Bless your heart. Right? We, we are uh, 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 aggressive in that way. We're afraid to confront somebody. And so we're mean nice. And we talk about them behind their back. And we make subtle comments under our breath towards others. Right? Or we gossip, whatever the case may be. Because we love conflict. There is no peace. See why we need Jesus? This is man's default posture without God. Everybody. Every, notice this is general. Right? This doesn't even get into specifics or the activities related to each one of these things. This is man in general and why we need God. And then he sums it up. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man does not respect or honor God. We are rebellious. We do not appreciate him in general. We ignore him. Pretend like he doesn't exist. We blaspheme his name call him names, are disrespectful, rebellious, because if man truly feared God, he'd fall on his face before God and acknowledge he is a sinner. Right. It's just like the story that Jesus told in the New Testament when he said that in the, uh, the, 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 the church, in the tabernacle, uh, or in, in the temple, there was a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and bragged about himself. The Bible says when he said he prayed, it literally says he prayed about himself. That's the literal translation. He prayed about himself. And he stood there and he talked about how great he was, how he paid his tithes and all this stuff, gave his offering. Uh, but thank God he wasn't like this tax collector on his face who wouldn't even approach the front, who was crying and begging God for mercy. That's a lack of fear of God. The tax collector, if we feared God, we'd all be the tax collector on our face before God. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. 
It doesn't matter if we grew up in church, was born in church, baptized when we were an infant, baptized when we were in elementary school. Uh, it doesn't matter. Any, none of those things matter. None righteous. No, not one. And we all need God. Just give me a few more minutes. Verse 19. For we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Bottom line, there is one purpose for the law. The law is to show how woefully short we are to being righteous like God. Amen. Now, I feel like I need to define what that word righteousness means. Righteousness in general means someone who has the moral authority, who is in right, who is right. God, of course, is the moral authority over all creation, over everything. He is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. He is the source of all truth. God is right. He is righteous. You and I are wrong. We are unrighteous. We are the opposite of God. In easy terms, when God says that God makes us righteous, it means God makes us in right standing before him. Because he sees, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Right, amen. Because Christ is perfect and holy, right? He's never messed up, right? He is, he is morally right, the source of all truth. He is God, so that because of God's grace and mercy, he doesn't see my righteousness because I am unrighteousness and it is filthy rags and it is gross. I am not in right standing before God. But when I confess Christ as Lord and Savior, that changes. My standing goes from unrighteous or not right to right. In right standing. Okay? So when you hear me saying righteousness, and we talk about the righteousness of God, that's God being right in everything. His, his moral, moral authority. He's holy, everything. We are the opposite. Okay? Now, he says, without the law, we would not know sin. So what he's telling the Jews is the law is important, but the law cannot save you. Right? If I get shot with a gun, it lets me know that I have a problem with bullets. Shooting me again don't help me out none. Right? Right? Maybe that went over someone's head or I didn't say it right. The law tells you you're wrong. You're vulnerable here. You're a liar. You're a cheater. I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. I'm a coveter. I'm a adulterer. I lust in my heart. I'm a hater. I'm a murderer. Right? It says you are vulnerable. You're guilty of this. So the law cannot save. Just like another shot. You get shot in the leg, shoot the other one, don't help. Right? Because rarely the instrument of our suffering is not the instrument of our healing when it comes to our physical bodies, right? And so therefore, the law cannot heal us, it cannot save us, why? Because we can never be obedient to the law, right? Not one person on the face of this earth can be 100% obedient to the law. At some point, we've broken God's law, his standard. At some point, 
we have sinned against God. Missed the mark. That's what sin means. God has his standard, and we missed it way off when we made a choice, a decision, an action, a word spoken. We missed it. And here's the thing. If you are guilty in one aspect of the law, you are guilty in all of it. Right? right? So, for example, we have all kinds of rules for driving on the highway, right? Speed limits, driving under the influence, reckless driving, driving without regard to others on the highway. All of these laws, right? Do I have to break all the laws to be guilty for a, a traffic crime? I just got to break one of them. And if I break one of them, that makes me guilty and I have to pay a fine. And this is the same case. God has his moral standard, his law, and if you break one, the, the penalty is death. For the wages of sin is death. Yeah. Right? The penalty is death. You can just break one. That lie makes you guilty before God. God set that up in the Garden of Eden when he told Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree. If you eat of this tree, you will die. That's his rule. You break God's law, you die. The wages of sin is death. If I break God's law in any way, in any part, in any tenant, no matter how small we think it is, right? Here's the thing with sin. We as humans... Look at sin like a stack of pennies, a stack of coins, from the side. And we go, my goodness, that's a big stack of coins. That is a bad person, an evil person, because this stack's really, really big. My stack is really, really small. <laughs> Bottom line is, though, I've still sinned. When God looks down, he doesn't see a stack. He just sees the sin. That's why the thief on the cross, who was a thief and deserved, said himself, he deserved to be up there. When he repented, God forgave him. Jesus didn't ask him what he did, didn't ask him to make sure he met the prerequisites. Well, you didn't do this, did you? Because that's a bad one right there. That's a really bad sin. No. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Right? And that's why God will forgive. And that's the great thing about God is, no matter how bad you're set, he will forgive you if you call upon him as Lord and Savior. Yes. Right? And all of us have sin and need him. Without the law, you and I would not know that we needed help. We wouldn't know how bad we are. He's going to talk about this more in a little bit and later in Romans. But God's word is a mirror that shows us just how far off we are. Right? It lets us know, my goodness, I sure do need him. Right. It's meant to focus us, focus us on God and our need of him, not someone else's need of him. Amen. Right. The word of God is for me, to convict me, to change me, to point out where I need help to be made more in the image of Christ. It's not to be a tool to beat somebody over the head with and tell them, hey, you better read this, you need to change, I'm perfect. And for years in churches and in the years in society, we have beaten people over the head so much with the Bible and ignored our own sin. And that's what Paul is talking about here to the Jews. You have beaten people over the head with the law, but you break the law. 
as Christians, don't beat people over, over the head with how sinful they are, that all have sinned when you're living in sin, and I'm living in sin. We need to recognize that we all need grace. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all of sin that falls short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of sin. But here's the good news. Yes, the law and everything we've heard in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 up to this point has been gloom and gloom. Man is lost. He's got to do this, right? He needs his audience to know. He needs his readers to know that all have sinned before God and that we are hopeless without God. We are hopeless, or we are helpless, but we're not hopeless. We are helpless on our own, but with God we're not hopeless. But without God, we are absolutely on our own, helpless and hopeless. And so he spent this introduction letting us all know, no matter who's reading, that we are all lost. Jew, Gentile, the guy who does drugs on the corner, the guy who committed more murder, the person who doesn't clock out for lunch. They all have sinned. Mm -hmm. But the great news is, what does he say? We are being justified freely by his grace. Yes. Paul's going to start the good news. The good news is this. We don't have to do it on our own, and thank God we don't. Uh, we don't have to obey the law and all of its tenets to be saved. We are justified freely. Justified is this. Think of it like this, the easiest way. Just as I never sinned. God looks at us and he says, you are justified. You are now righteous. He says, I'm looking at you. All of that sin and all of that guilt is gone. The Bible says he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west never to be remembered against us again. So all of that junk we talked about in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, when you accept Christ as Lord and Savior, God says, I wipe the slate clean. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He never looks back at your past again or holds your sin against you again. And you are freely given the gift of salvation. That's why it is such an atrocity and it is such a shame in our world that men reject God because God asks for nothing but gives everything. We sit and we say, how dare God hold me accountable for my sin? How dare God say this and how dare God say that? When God says, I gave you the remedy for free, I sent my son to die upon the cross so you can be redeemed. You don't have to do anything but call upon me. It's free. It's disgusting that man spits in the face of God. It would be like on Christmas morning, you giving your child a beautiful, awesome, amazing gift, and your child giving it back to you and telling you, how dare you give me that? It's the wrong color. It's not the right version. That's what we do to God. On a 
much grander scale. Yes, yes. That's what the world does to God. Because he gave his life. Yes, thank you. And all we have to do is confess him as Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Confess the Lord Jesus in your heart. Believe that he has risen from the dead and you are saved. Yes. Confess him as Lord. And it is free. But man is selfish and self-centered. But it is free to us that Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let's look at that word, uh, propitiation. The Hebrew equivalent of the word propitiation was used to describe the mercy seat, the cover to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, very quickly, for those who may not know, the Ark of the Covenant was what God had them build in the wilderness, and it was anointed, and, and it was put in the temple, and God actually put his power, his presence, everything inside that Ark. It had to be carried a certain way. It had to be handled a certain way. It couldn't be touched by just anybody. And when it was set up, when the nation of Israel, when they would have their day of atonement, when the sacrifice would be made for their sins, the high priest would enter into that room called uh, the Holy of Holies where the ark was set. And the top of it had two cherubim on it with their wings pointed in. That was the mercy seat. And what the high priest would do is he would take the blood from the altar, he would take it into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. When they say that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, what he's saying is he was the mercy seat. He was the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. And when the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, God forgave the sins of Israel. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross and he was the propitiation for our sins, his blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. One and done. God now will forgive the sins of mankind, past, present, future. And never have to sacrifice another animal, never have to follow another ritual. None of that. We are now forgiven. If you accept him as Lord and Savior. Verse 27, where, boasting, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what, by, the, uh, by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. So Paul says that our forgiveness, we are justified. We could be made righteous, not through the law, but through grace. God's mercy, his grace, that gift of salvation that he gives. And that in that, we cannot boast in the law. Because we can never be obedient to the law, so therefore we can't boast in ourselves. None of us can go and say, we're so good, God loved us and had mercy on us. Not one of us can. Not one of us could appeal to our goodness or our own righteousness. So what Paul says, and the only thing to boast in is God's grace. The only thing that you and I can boast in is God. Amen. How great God is. Because without God, we would be lost. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? What he's saying there is that God is God of everyone. And that he sent Jesus Christ to die for everyone. 
And that everyone can be forgiven regardless of your race, your social status, your economic status, you know, whatever, your education, whatever the case may be. Jesus died for all of us and all of us can be forgiven. It is of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, right? I didn't come to take one, uh, remove one eye or one mark from the word, the law. I came to fulfill the law. Jesus Christ was the one who came. He was the reason the law was sent in the first place. Well, so we would know how woefully short we were and how great a gift he was. And so therefore the law isn't unimportant and the law doesn't just disappear, but it is a tool for teaching us how lost we are and that we have no hope without Christ. And so therefore we are therefore we establish the law through grace. Meaning the law is proven to do its job because of grace. If Jesus Christ ever came if grace is ever present, we would all be hopeless, even the Jews. Let us stand. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that you enjoyed it and were blessed by it. Each month, we have people from all over the world who listen to the messages made available. If you've been blessed by this ministry, would you consider making a donation of any amount to help support us as we continue to reach a loss for Christ? Donations can be made online at www.reviveoc.org or by check at Revive Outreach Church, 411 Chatham Heights Road, Suite 101, Fredericksburg, Virginia, 22405. Thank you for your prayers and your continued support. May God richly bless you.